this is the fire these times and i'm your host joey ayub Welcome everyone. Uh, this is the Fire These Times. I'm your host, Jibia Youb, uh, as is the case uh, most times. Today we'll be talking with Timothée Parik and uh, Yusra Bitar. Yusra will also be co-hosting, uh, which is this new format that I've been experimenting and which consists of someone also hosting. I'm not very good at explaining things. I'm going to ask both of you if that's okay to introduce yourselves. Uh, the topic will be degrowth very broadly, but we'll try and get into some of the specifics. And this comes in the back of uh, or at least a few days after the Beyond Growth Conference happened at the EU that I attended. Uh, Timothy attended as well, and Timothy spoke there uh, two or three times, I think, and which was quite uh, surprising. In, 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 I mean, for me personally, uh, which might speak to my uh, often low expectations, but I was positively surprised by most of it uh, and some critiques here and there. I'm sure we can get into that as well. But no doubt the significance of, of that happening in that context is, is to be noted. And for those listening who have not followed online or have not been there, of course, in Brussels, uh, I will put the link to that conference, which you can, you can just uh, watch the, the, um, the panels and whatnot online anyway. And uh, I was told, or at least they told us there, that there's going to be also like a bunch of resources and whatnot released on that website. So it's cool to just keep, uh, uh, keep your eyes out. Anyway, uh, let's start with some intros, if that's okay. Uh, Timothée, you're our guest, so maybe you can go first, and Yusra, you can go after that. Fantastic, everyone. Hello. So Timothée Parik, she won the perfect French pronunciation. I'm a researcher in ecological economics, currently at... The School of Economics and Management of Lund University in the southwest of Sweden. And I wrote my PhD dissertation, which ended up being titled The Political Economy of Degrowth. That's from 2019, which is really a broad, wide, and uh, atrociously long theoretical work uh, whose aim was really to define what is degrowth and what are its economic implication. I've been translating that work into a shorter French book, not yet in English, soon in German and Spanish, and then I hope English. And now I'm uh, conduct conducting research on the issue of decoupling and the impossibility of green growth and the financing of welfare systems without economic growth. Hello, my name is Yusra. I am a research fellow at the Arab Reform Initiative in their environmental politics program. Uh, I'm also a post-growth affiliate fellow. Uh, I joined as a, as a fellow last year. And I, I am also, I'm also someone that researches degrowth and how it, it um, applies to the Middle East region. And uh, last year I wrote a piece on degrowth in, to the, in the Lebanon context and what degrowth within the, the realm of uh, economic collapse means and what what the ideation can can mean and what the difference between the recession we're experiencing is right now and how it differs from degrowth but how how much we can build off of what's coming out within the cracks of the collapse transition um and i've used timothy's work uh, for that piece so thank you for for that okay well awesome <laughs> thanks thank you both for for those intros yeah i, I remember Yusra's piece um because it included that meme that uh, timothy shared some time ago on twitter i think of 
the the mountain bike going down and the difference between uh, degrowth and a recession because uh Yusra, i don't know do you want to introduce that at, uh, as well i think it's a good anchor to this conversation yeah sure uh so for just to give a bit of context, there has been an economic crisis in Lebanon since uh, 2018, although arguably the, the roots of it are decades old. Uh, and that has translated to hyperinflation, and the hyperinflation has meant an inability to access particular resources that uh, maintain a, a particular standard of living. And, and in addition to um, accessing electricity, accessing uh, healthcare, et cetera. In the context of the peace, what what I I was uh, experiencing was extremely dark streets, just like everybody else in in the country, because there was no money to purchase fuel to fuel the electricity grid. It was basically me in the context of very dark streets and walking with a friend who has heard me blab about degrowth for years, and and he and he told me basically, "Are you happy now? This is happening. Degrowth is here. Uh, this is degrowth. You got degrowth." So that statement was like him teasing, but it was also one of the narratives that we know very well in, in the, you know, as thinkers of degrowth, that recession and degrowth are the same. Uh, degrowth implies uh, the opposite of prosperity. And I just wanted, I just wrote the piece to explain what the difference is, but also seeing what solutions coming up as a response to the, to the catastrophe could be create an alternative. So some examples I gave were uh, some initiatives uh, stemming out in different parts of Lebanon that uh, were creating a food uh, sovereignty network, for example, to create a sustainable food system. Uh, another is the shift to renewables as a response, like a, a, a faster shift. There, there was some form of transition to solar and like wind energy, but it wasn't happening as fast as it was in the past since since the collapse and since the hyper necessity of uh, of immediate energy access. So yeah, and another example I gave was the, the renewable initiatives happening all over the country. But making sure the idea that this needs to be implemented on a policy level and not like haphazard initiatives here and there for those who have the material uh, ability to initiate those alternatives. I asked you to kind of um, kind of bring us into this conversation with that example, just because uh, this won't be a Lebanon-specific um, episode, of course. We did one previously, which hasn't been released yet, Yusra and I, with J.D. Harlock, uh, which I'll release at some point, and I'm sure we'll do others at some point, uh, focusing on the Global South more broadly. But this uh, kind of tendency, I call it almost like a reflex, and something definitely that I have personally experienced as well, of like, you say the word degrowth and for those who well in many cases like what are you talking about in other cases it would be like uh, just an assumption of scarcity right like the image of scarcity comes into people's minds uh, or a lot of people's minds anyway and of course the the idea of degrowth and post growth is actually post all of that post scarcity thinking uh, we might say post scarcity economics uh, Timothy, would you mind kind of, uh, you published your uh, PhD in 2019, in many ways, like the timing was pretty good for unfortunate reasons when it comes to COVID in 2020. And this idea of uh, degrowth being, I think, arguably, at the very least, uh, being taken more and more seriously in quote unquote, mainstream thought. What what has the, your experience on that been? What can you share with us? And I know, and this is, I should say, like, this is also in the back of a uh, post that you published yesterday. Today is May 22nd, uh, 2023, I should say, as a response to The Economist because they covered uh, that Beyond Growth conference uh, in, a, in a rather ridiculous way, I should say. Uh, but yeah, feel free to take it from there if you want. 
Yeah, that, that piece from uh, The Economist was titled something like, Meet the Lefty Europeans Who Want to Deliberately Shrink the Economy. Uh, and the, the first thing is, and is that exactly what you guys were talking about, is to be like, oh, look, but there is no more growth in Europe. You should be happy. I mean, I point to Italy, which has been what we macroeconomists call secular stagnation. So very low or stagnant rates of economic growth, famously, uh, also happening in Japan for a few decades. And so they're like, you should, you know, that's the utopia you're you're calling for, uh, which is, um, well, we should be worried about this in a way, because, you know, you're, you're a journalist reporting on a conference where you have 5,000 people, including all the world experts uh, that work on the topic, and you don't even manage to understand the, the kind of first thing about the concept. Uh, which it's it's um, it's it's pretty worrying, but the way I usually explain it is to really make the difference between because recessions and degrowth have something in common. That thing in common is a reduction of co production and consumption. But during a recession, that reduction happens like accidentally. And when I say accidentally, is that it's undesired, so it come with. Uh, deleterious social outcomes like unemployment, austerity, poverty, uh, a lack of investment even in environmental project, all of that. Degrowth, on the other hand, the way the concept is discussed by academists and activists, describes a planned, selective, and equitable downscaling of economic activities. So here you can really make the difference. Recession, unplanned, and unwanted. Degrowth, designed and desired. And my favorite analogy to really make the difference is uh, the following is, you know, that's what I, I wrote in, in the piece that I published yesterday. So uh, a response to the economist, shut up and let me grow, um, where I explain that, as I, I say, associating degrowth with a recession just because the two involve a reduction of GDP is absurd. It would be like arguing that an amputation and a diet are the very same thing just because they both lead to weight loss. And so it's, I mean, science is complex. We are using a concept that mean more than what you know, they're saying the word. So when you say degrowth is not only degrowing everything in the same way that when you say communism is not putting everything in common, or when you say sustainable development, it does mean sustainably developing everything. So there's a bit of a subtlety, especially for a concept that has been existing since 2002, at least. So yeah, we really need, and I think that's our responsibility as, as, um, as an expert of the topic to, to explain, but it's also the responsibility of journalists, you know, when you attend a conference to kind of cover what is being said. So you're right, like this piece published by The Economist is not really a critique, it's a sneer. It's just to say like, oh, a bunch of, you know, leftist radicals have have hijacked the parliament for three days and they're going to talk of of uh, nonsensical ideas. I mean, what they say, like, they, they call, he calls it like a pretty wacky growth as the root of all problem jamboree among a cast of minor academics, which is kind of funny, you know, a cast of minor academics like Joseph Stiglitz, Vandana Shiva, Johan Rockstrom, Kate Rayworth, Rash Patel, you know, like these <laughs> giants respected by everyone, even outside of heterodox economics. I mean, even who economists would dare calling Joseph Stiglitz a minor scholar? <laughs>
It, it says a lot. No, um, I have so many thoughts. And <laughs> you, you can also jump in, of course. But I, I still find it a bit baffling that this is a, it's still a common attitude, I guess we might say, of a lot of people in the economics world, whether they are themselves economists or, uh, you know, maybe journalists who write on econ or maybe, a, a, you know, financial journalists or whatnot. Of this idea that even questioning growth as as a model, like questioning GDP, for example, economic growth specifically and GDP, often is almost like it's not just taboo. It's like almost beyond taboo. It's like it's too ridiculous to even comprehend. Like it's almost you're committing a, a blasphemy, you know, in in many ways. And it does feel a bit. Uh, I use blasphemy, of course, uh, purposefully because it feels almost like there's this religious tenet or a number of them, like you know, a number of commandments. And the first one is thou shall not, you know, uh, criticize uh, economic growth or whatnot. And I, I find it still baffling. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should be like uh, more, uh, I don't know, sober about this, if that's the, the, the right term. But I still find it interesting that, you know, you someone can go to a conference like this one, which, you know, as you mentioned, was pretty, pretty varied as well. Like there were even some folks who were green growthers, quote unquote, who were not very popular. Uh, and you had some, you know, the the first speakers, uh, including Ursula von der Leyen herself, and this, uh, who have a lot of critiques of. But like, it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't like an Occupy camp where it's just mostly people who already agree with one another, which is a cliche, and it's not always true either. But it wasn't even that, right? It was pretty straightforward as to what this conference was about and what it was going to explore and 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 try and develop and the plenaries were pretty different from one another at times and there's quite a lot to get out of almost regardless of what your original uh take might be like there's something for you there and that that i think was one of the strengths of that of that conference but anyway uh yuska i mean i agree with what you're saying but for me i think it's interesting when we i talk about the growth and the the, the tenants of the growth with people here at home here and and like under, explaining the the where it comes from and how it's a, a true response to the climate catastrophe. I think in, when it's there's a constant reminder that this is what we're dealing with in relation to the changing climate. There's more of an acceptance, and I've personally found it to be rare that there's a um, the same kind of response or rigidness in relation to growth here, at least. Um, and I think it's probably because in the past few years we haven't really been growing, and when it comes to you know the 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 measurements of GDP and and whatever. Um, so I think there's also a very lived experience to what recession looks like and what um, happens when there is a recession in relation to the growth. And I think maybe maybe that that could be why viewing of the same issue. And I just feel like there's more of a responsiveness here, despite the fact that you know the rest of the world, the global so-called global north is more responsible for shrinking so the rest of the world can breathe you know yeah there's there's a different attitude of uh, at the very least from the examples i think that we're more familiar with of uh, this idea of uh, like you just need to be realistic quote unquote about the reality of of economic growth is not it's not exactly tenable if you're in a situation where you haven't benefited as much or at all for that matter from from that uh, framework, because as, as the conference did get into, I should say, like a number of times, uh, it has been uh, mostly a one-way situation with capital and labor and whatnot being produced for the global north. Of course, this is an oversimplification. There are uh, nuances within the global south as well. But as a general trend, um, this is uh, definitely true. 
Uh, Timothée, you've mentioned, uh, well, in your speech, but at the conference, at least the one I attended, but also a number of times, you've described situations, right, like where growth in already rich countries, like they've mentioned, the economists mentioned, and I don't, I don't want to give that piece too much air, to be honest, but as, as, a, as a symptomatic example of, of this kind of attitude, I think that we're familiar with, um, which is a very unserious one, uh, we should say, like, this is not a serious uh, argument. Uh, there are serious arguments within the degrowth and post-growth movement that allow for a lot of nuance as to how to do something, where to do it, when, and that sort of thing. But uh, arguments like these ones, I don't think are very serious. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't want, I mean, you already did a response to it, right? So this is not going to be just another one. And I will link to your piece in the, in the show notes as well. But you've described situations where, you know, already rich countries like uh, Italy, like Japan, haven't really been growing in that GDP sense in a while now. And despite that, there's still, it's almost like a, a, an obsession. I mean, that, that term was also repeated a number of times at the Beyond Growth Conference, an obsession with GDP, an obsession with economic growth. And you've argued, of course, that this obsession has generated more costs than benefits. And uh, can you flesh that out a bit, if that's okay with you? Because this is still something that I think emotionally still resonates, even with a lot of people, uh, at least in my experience, that in theory wouldn't really n disagree with the premise of what we are arguing here, but kind of feel again like, oh, this, this feels a bit too unrealistic or too utopic or too whatnot. What is it about that assumption that uh, it gets fundamentally wrong, if I could put it that way? There's a concept I like from American economist Ermin Daly, which is the concept of uneconomic growth. And Ermin Daly calls uneconomic growth that extra production, that growth that bears more social ecological cost than financial benefits. So what I like is when we talk about economic growth at the macroeconomic level, we, we tend that the discussion gets very abstract. And so we fall within that obsession. So what some people have called growthism or the ideology of growth, where we assume that everything should forever exponentially increase. But imagine you're the owner of a small bakery and you know you're just making bread and in doing so let's say you're selling your bread and you know if you're thinking about well you're starting up you don't have enough customers you've not reached what microeconomists you know would say an optimal scale where you can sell enough bread just to be in balance and you can you know pay the rent for your place you can pay you know your workers the factors of production whatever okay so then you might be in a bit of a upscaling mentality, you know, a bit of a growth mentality. Okay, how do you reach that scale? But then imagine putting yourself in a situation where you need to exponentially sell more every year. Like after some point, you're going to realize that if you want to do this first, you will need to work more. So we realize the first trade-off we have. It's true at the micro scale. It's true at the meso scale. It's true at the macro national scale. It never disappears. A day was, is, and will forever be 24 hour long. If you want to sell more bread, you will have to just focus on that. Maybe you'll have to open another place. Maybe you'll have to hire more people. That means more time. And if you want to do this, you'll need to just, you know, make your oven function longer. You would need more flour and more bread and more, you know, raw materials. And so your material footprint will increase because you cannot make bread out of nothing. In that very small experience of what should be considered, you know, like a very instinctive economic activity, we understand that labor time 
energy and materials are the real limiting factors of the growth of any economic activity. And these are not present in that overall discourse about economic growth. And I just want to point, now I'm writing a second piece that I'll be publishing at the end of the week, where I analyze the five speeches of the people that came from the European Commission, which all showed perfect example of, you know, uh, we want economic growth, we need to make it green, sustainable, whatever you guys hippie want, but we won't give up growth because growth is progress, growth is the future, growth is modernity, growth is civilization. And then I realized that this is just... um. It shows like both a misunderstanding of what growth is on, on the result side of things. So first, like, yeah, if, if that extra income doesn't end up, ends up in the pocket of those that are already rich, it has no effect on well-being. Actually, it increases inequality. And since inequality is correlated to uh, unwell-being, we know that it will decrease quality of life. And same thing. If that income drives inequality, but also the stuff you produce are not really necessary production. Let's say you're going to create a lot of bullshit firms doing marketing to sell stuff you didn't need it in the first place. That's a lot of economic agitation, but for literally zero well-being. And so if economic growth right now in these high-income countries that are so desperate uh, to stimulate their economy, they are just refusing to accept the fact that sometime your economy reaches an optimal scale. We are like here you know what? We're good. We don't want to work more. We don't want to mobilize more energy and materials because we can't, because we will need these materials in other countries. And we also have enough if we organize ourselves equitably, intelligently, to just be content, to be satisfied, to be sufficient. So these kind of mentality of sufficiency is the, you could say, the opposite of the spectrum of the infinite uh, ideology of growth. And would this lead us to what what you you know um, you and others have called a steady state economy? Yeah, I like to link it up to be like degrowth is a transition mm -hmm. towards a steady state economy. So if you picture uh, a country like France, Germany, Sweden, the U.S., Australia, countries whose productive capacities, whose levels of production and consumption are so beyond. The carrying capacities of their ecosystems, we realize that you cannot green that. You will not be able to green it. Even if you have no growth, even if you just maintain these levels, you won't be able to get back within safe planetary boundaries. Mm -hmm. The only way to make it work is to reduce production and consumption. So you do so until you manage to get back within your biocapacity. And once you're there, then you stabilize, you change, you know, it's, you've done your diet, now you're back into full health. You know that this infrastructure, like the use of energy every time and materials won't be able to grow forever. You can, you know, it can change a bit. It can oscillate that the, the dynamic concept of steady state economy is not an economy that is stagnant or that has stopped uh, like a game of musical chairs. No, it's rather something that within the same material infrastructure manages to focus on quality activities, uh, on well-being as an objective, which 
we know from social science does not derive from the quantity of stuff you own. It derives from the quality of experiences you have. So you can have, you know, 12 cars in your garage, but if you have no friends, you'll be miserable. <laughs> you can have no car, a bunch of bikes, if you have many friends, and you can have go and have picnics and uh, the time to nap and go to the theaters and whatever, like uh, play music with your friends, you'll be the happiest uh, human on earth. Mm -hmm. So if that's true, if we know this from psychology, from sociology, from anthropology, why are we wiring our economies to just churn out a maximum, an increasingly maximum amount of goods and services that requires an increasing amount of hours that we should and could uh, spend doing other things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can't see me, but I'm just nodding along. <laughs> I so okay. The you also suggested that like the real limiting factor, or at least a bunch of people have as well suggested is in transitioning to actually let let me backtrack a bit. This idea of sustainability, right? Like the very idea of to be sustained sounds very good, of course. And in principle, of course, it's a good thing. But what is it? Maybe I don't know if this is repeating yourself, so feel free to take it to in a different um uh different direction if you want. But what is it about the term sustainable development in, in the way it is usually framed that kind of feels, if I can put it this way, as an oxymoron? I can start by saying very quickly that the term décroissance in French came as a, a critique of sustainable development back in 2002. So the people that coined décroissance conviviale, convivial degrowth, they were criticizing sustainable development as being a Western capitalistic growth obsessed paradigm a paradigm that instead of you know touching the root of the problem was actually trying to green uh, an imperialist uh, global form of uh, unsustainable exploitation and we see this today i mean you look at these sustainable development goals and you're like okay cool hunger education why not climate yeah water yeah we like this and then you're like sdg8 yeah economic growth I was like, what is this about? We're completely confusing the means. Agitating your economy is not an end in itself. It's not a goal. It's a mean. You agitate your economy. You mobilize labor, time, and materials uh, just to produce something that you need. And then you use that thing, that bike, to go from A to B. That's mobility. And then you derive some satisfaction from that. And the satisfaction can be, you know, liberty can be access to health healthy food all that stuff that's the goal we should be measuring economic growth should not be a goal so today i think uh, the degrowth and post-growth discourse it provides a more sophisticated vision of sustainability because it allows you to talk about differentiated responsibility and so differentiated lines of action to summarize it if you take countries in overshoot in the global north, they should degrow. If that is the case, well, better plan it democratically so it can be a just and convivial degrowth. So they degrow to a steady state and countries in the global south who find themselves in a situation where they still have a lot of unmet needs, they can have access to energy, matter and labor time so that they can upskill you see, I'm trying not to use grow because grow involves this kind of linear infinite. They can just upscale, develop the kind of productive capacity they need to reach sufficiency. And both these trajectories meet 
in the middle in a sustainable steady state where everyone can satisfy their needs under planetary boundaries. It's not not to add too much, but I think the the challenge for me when I think of sustainable development and what development means and what the measurement of development means, it always brings up the same images for for people. It's often images of a city or image of like a lot of activity, and I and I just find it. I think in terms of like the dominant ideation or like dominant um, idea of what progress means has, has, is still there and trying to f find a way to, to create alternative images. So that's more of a common commonality. And with that, I, I just I, going back to what you've been working on a lot, Timothy, these days on green growth and the fallacy of green growth. Uh, why cannot why can't growth not be green? Is there no way that economic growth can take into consideration ecological laws and still somewhat grow? Well, I would say no. Um, well, there are three ways of approaching this. The strongest rebuttal is, and this I think is consensual now, is that all experiences we've seen of growth in the past has never been within planetary boundaries in the sense of if you take a multi-impact perspective you take into account not only carbon emissions but you know soil impact on biodiversity fresh water use emissions of pollutants material footprint all of that we realize that when you produce and consume more that put a strain on these resources that derives from a very simple biophysical truth which is the fact that no economic activity is possible without time energy and materials everything requires a human even the most dematerialized service will require someone that will need to eat food, be warm, wear clothes, and move themselves to go to work. So this is why you can, let's say, decouple to a certain extent certain things. If you produce services instead of heavy industry, of course, you're going to have different impact. And that overall impact can be lower. It can be lower, but it cannot be null. And if it cannot be null, it means that if you keep growing your economy, necessarily, mathematically, unavoidably, at some point, your total impact will have overbalanced the efficiency impact of you know, each of the things you produced. And this is what we see historically in all countries in the world that we've been looking at in all the empirical studies we have on decoupling, which is almost a thousand studies. And then that's the first part, looking at the past. Then some people could say, yeah, but in the future, the future is already there. So what we need, you know, when the Europe say we're fit for 55 means reducing emissions by 55% by 2030. That's in the coming seven years. So then it's also second part of the argument to show that even if green growth was theoretically possible, I will soon show that it's not, and I've done so a bit before, but that it would be foolish to think that it is feasible because it involves a speeding up of all the things that allow us to just have this bit of decoupling to a point that is unrealistic, especially since certain impact have not even started to decouple, even in the most progressive in terms of environmental policies countries in the world, then the only way to have green growth at this point would be to completely change the way we measure economic growth. Just And then there's no point because economic growth is su supposed to be a measure of production and consumption. And so statistically, we could just do a bit of stats magic and you know start counting certain things that we did not include before. And that means GDP will be bigger and would feel like growth, but it's stupid because you know the goal today for sustainability is to decrease environmental uh, use 
the, the use of natural resources. This is what needs to go down. When we talk of green growth, we focus on the wrong end of the stick because we're like, yeah, we want to grow and we want to do it as green as possible. No, actually, it's not, you know, green growth. It's uh, a growth green. <laughs> Stupid. But like, actually, what's important is the green. What we need is green. And again, like the problem with the other problem with green growth, even if you were to show that it is, it has been happening before. And so therefore we expect it as feasible to happen in the near future. And it is theoretically possible to completely decouple. So that's a viable strategy for sustainability. Even if you manage to do this, I've been looking at this since 2018 every day. And I've not found a single person on earth that managed to put together that proof. And I've been looking. Even if you were to do this, then you still face the this very powerful argument of like, why would you want to go through so much effort just to produce and consume stuff that are not needed because they're completely decorrelated from quality of life? Yeah, I've also been nodding along. <laughs> this is not very good audio content. <laughs> I So you, you've mentioned that at the end of this week, you're going to be publishing a piece on responding to the those who from the European Commission. I'm very curious if you can kind of give us a bit of a maybe preview of that. Uh, as I said, this episode might be released sooner than your piece or might be released after. In either case, I'll try and remember to put it in the show notes. And also more specifically, I know, or in addition to that, maybe, uh, I know that within the, the conference of Beyond Growth at the European Parliament in Brussels, those three days that, that um, we attended, there were people, there was even a panel that I have, I don't know which one, so I can't say for sure. I, I was not there, to be clear, but I have been told was a bit cringy, is a quote of a friend who attended of like having a debate, and I'm putting this in quotation, between a, between like the positions of degrowth, post-growth, and green growth. And that was how it was framed, which I, I find a bit uh, uh, <laughs> bizarre. It kind of, not just the panel, but there were a few people here and there, who, including Ursula von der Leyen herself who are basically saying that this is possible. And it's almost, again, I'm repeating this whole religious aspect a bit, but it kind of feels a bit like a mantra. Like you repeat it enough time, and maybe if you say it a hundred times, it, it becomes true. And on the other side, you have all of these climate scientists and ecological economists and all of these other folks who are saying, this is the data, this is why this cannot work. And also, it actually makes a lot of sense as to why this might not work. And here is a thousand examples of Things that you also, you Ursula, or you, all of these other folks would also agree with, like the example of the baker, for example. I don't think many people disagree with these fundamental examples, but somehow when you, when you imagine a scaling up, like, okay, yeah, sure, this can work. I'm imagining this conversation. Like, this can work in an economy or, or, sorry, in a neighborhood level, or this can work within the family or whatnot. But when you have to scale up, you have to take all of these other things into consideration and somehow this this translates itself into some kind of, you know, uh, GDP oriented economic growth and whatnot. Anyway, that was a bunch of stuff I threw at you. So feel free to to pick uh, what you want. The the panel you're referring to is the the focus panel one that happened on on May 15. It was in the morning. Uh, you can watch the replay and. It was a call which prosperous future confronting narratives of growth, where they were, you know, discussing like degrowth versus green growth. And there was uh, Michael Jacobs, professor of political economy at the uh, in, in Sheffield, uh, the University of Sheffield in the UK, and he was the one representing uh, green growth. So you guys can have a look at this and make uh, yourself an opinion. There's also a very good debate between uh, Sam uh, Frankhauser 
uh, and Jason Hickel, moderated by uh, Kate Raworth at the University of Oxford, I think from um, early this year. And I find like first when we compare these two, there's the scientific aspect of just, I think the burden of proof should be on the one believing that we can do something that we've never done. Very often, these people, they will tell you, but look, we've never done degrowth either. So you have to prove that it works. And I'm like, that's silly. I mean, do I need to mathematically demonstrate that if you don't fly a plane, you don't emit the emissions compared to someone that argues we can fly more planes and emit less? I'm like, no. It's like you're a flat earther. If you're a flat earther, the burden of proof is on you. You have to show us that your theory is stronger than these kind of, uh, you know, the earth is round. So green growthers here, they're just unjustly, I think, passing the burden of proof on degrowther, where what we argue is a very strong common, commonsensical argument. The, you know, the most sustainable resource is the one you don't need to use. And again, we've seen this historically also during COVID, lockdown is a very good way of reducing environmental pressures. That's more of an imputation-like strategy. We, but we should explore the possibility of, of recreating the same consequences, but in a convivial, more just, uh, and more democratic fashion. So the first thing that comes to mind, and the second comment, is just that the narratives don't have the same depth. Green growth is does, it's not a utopia. When I debate green growth with a, usually economists, only economists and entrepreneurs uh, defend this view or officials, and we'll come back to the few examples of the European Commission. But it's um, it's not a utopia. It's people saying, oh, let's keep doing what we do, and it can be green if you had a, ta- a carbon tax. I mean, literally, it's only this. I mean, you can watch the debate between Sam and Jason Hickel, and you'll see the only thing Sam is advocating for is put a tax on carbon, that will change behaviors, and they'll phase out you know, fossil fuels. And I'm like, this is this is your solution? It sounds a bit like, you know, one bullet, one ring to to rule them all. Whereas if you look at degrowth, you have a diversity of strategies and policies. And an article we wrote with Nick Fitzpatrick, published in 2022, we identify uh, 380 instruments in the degrowth literature. And degrowth is connected to other utopia like solar punk and eco-socialism and social and solidarity economy and the commons-based economy. And so it's a much richer paradigm, whereas green growth is just basically trying to just decarbonize the economy. That's what they've done. They've not even looked at other environmental impact. There's no, no one in the green growth discourse has anything to say about biodiversity, for example. It's just a blind spot. You tell biodiversity to an economist and look at you like you're an idiot. Like, are you talking about my dog? Yeah, like my dog. We walk in the park on Sunday. What this has to do with the economy. I'm like, this is what the economy is, you know, animals, energy, labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know you say you, you wanted to ask a question. I'll quickly just say before that, if that's okay, that uh, what this sort of tells me as in as in like the image that comes to mind is that the economists, policymakers and others who are sort of trying to square that circle or circle that square, whatever, is that they have the answer that they want. And they're just trying to fit the question or to fit the framework or whatnot to try and squeeze in that answer. And that's just not how 
science works. We don't. We we may have a a a a, a suggestion or a hint or something like, oh, we think this might be the case, but we still need to test it against the evidence. And if the if the evidence doesn't kind of stack up, well, we change the conclusion. We don't change the evidence. Yeah, and also just listening to you speak, it just makes me really wonder, is it a question of ideology? And as you were saying, like trying to fit the square into a circle that is already there, is it the uncertain, like unwillingness to understand the severity of the climate catastrophe? Is it fear of uh, accountability at some point for those who are still benefiting from fossil fuel? Like I, I really do not comprehend this rigidity to stick in working as usual, given the severity of the crisis. It's just like a it's just difficult to accept as as a you know a playing field um despite the fact that there has been a lot of progress despite it it probably feels like yeah. all of the above right yeah but with that said there has been a lot of progress when it comes to shifting more people to thinking of post growth and degrowth i think for me i'm i'm curious more about timothy when it comes to your work or your conversations in, in your network when it comes to again, in quotation, the global south or in, in contrast to the global north in relation to, to degrowth. And because because as we said before, it is it is an idea that came that the developed, so-called developed countries need to shrink for the rest of the world to grow. But I do wonder if more conversations of how that relates to the, to the rest of the world has, have been coming up, like conversations on degrowth in the Middle East, for example, or I don't know, just in general. Yeah, and it's... I mean, the 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 one the first theorist of of degrowth in France was uh, Serge Latouche, uh, who wrote the Le Paris de la décroissance in two thousand six, and Serge Latouche, you know, was uh, first a, a rather mainstream economist, and he did uh, his PhD thesis fieldwork in in Africa in Congo, and you know that's where. He got the idea of degrowth because he's like, well, this development strategy is just pure social ecological exploitation. It's pure accumulation by dispossession and accumulation by deterioration. So we're calling it growth, but actually it's just, you know, uh, enslaving the global south for the interest of an imperial mode of living in the global north. And we dare call it economic growth, even though even the benefits of that are not just increasing quality of life and are so unevenly spread, even within the North. So he, he came back being like, uh, wow, this, this development paradigm is uh, really an imperialism. And so he likes it in his book to always remind that, you know, his thoughts on degrowth started uh, in the global South. Uh, it was not a reflection of you know like shopping malls in in Luxembourg and 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 the experience of of consumerism in the north. It was rather starting from the impact of the lifestyles and kind of like like a detective tracing back. Well, why are we extracting so many minerals in Africa? Now are we exporting them? What do we do with that and that and that? And then you know you link to plant obsolescence, another topic he spent all his life working on as a way of connecting these two, like the development perspective to enslave the global South to become like all you can eat buffets for the rich uh, of the global North, uh, that then, you know, for-profit capitalist companies using planned obsolescence to just, you know, make profits out of creating a dependency of consumers towards always replacing uh, their phones and computers every year. And, you know, that gave him a, a systemic perspective 
of of that whole growth as as an ideology and as a phenomenon of exploitation, which is you know it's a critique of development and a critique of capitalism, but the prism of growth I think is it's very powerful because it's a discourse today that is so um so important so when we talk about degrowth wow you know the, the media are getting railed up the economist feels like it needs to kind of defend its ground if you were to call about like you know critic of capitalism they'll be oh, just another marxist like there are many so i think there's a bit of of novelty uh in this and now you're right like the the concept of degrowth so it was translated in english in 2008 before that it was very european so it was uh, very present in italy in catalonia in spain in belgium in quebec but then when it gets translated in English, it moves to other countries. And now it's even just moving beyond. I mean, I've got, um, you know, activists and scholars that are just very present, very active in these circles. They are just uh, from South America, from uh, some parts of, 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 of India, some people in other, in other countries that, uh, that where they connected with other discourses uh, can be Buen Vivir in South America, Ubuntu in Africa, can be Eco Swaraj in India. So there's a bit of this convergence. That's some scholars, some scholars, they call it a pluriverse of concept. So in, you know, around the Mediterranean in Western Europe, we have this decroissance, you know, degrowth. But then that connects with the voluntary simplicity of the people in Quebec and maybe the the minimalism of, of some people in the US and then the buen vivir on 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 people in the South America and and other concepts, each in their context uh, that share a number of values can be, you know, a uh, certain relation to nature, sufficiency, justice, care, all these kind of stuff. So that's why you can include them into a pluriverse of, of shared values. And what they have in common also is their uh, contestation, their criticism of global capitalism as a system of exploitation. So that's also what brings them uh, together. And that makes it into a very strong like Avenger-like alliance. And I think this conference at the parliament, we've seen the diversity of this concept, which is not a competition to know which concept is best. It actually makes us realize that the thing we criticize is more specific than we thought. It's not human nature. It's not demography. It's something very specific. It is uh, growth, obsessed, forms of profit-seeking capitalism based on a very particular and culturally situated relation with nature that is both, you know, imperialistic, uh, commodifying, and uh, all, all of that. So I think it's, um, it's a good way of realizing that here there is no risk of degrowth becoming a new imperialism. So becoming basically the new sustainable development where now instead of trying to just grow sustainably and having these goals, we will have, you know, sustainable degrowth goals and we'll impose it to everyone in the world. It's rather a shut up button to global capitalism. Being like, guys, just shut up and let the pluriverse live. I love this idea of the pluriverse. I... I attended a, a, a kind of like a summer school last summer in Coimbra in Portugal called that the summer school. I think it was called uh, Pluriverse Summer School or something along those lines at the University of Coimbra. And yeah, it was largely um, Spanish speaking oriented. There were quite a lot of Latin Americans and that sort of vision in many ways uh, wasn't really wasn't as much like, uh, oh, here, here is this thing that has been cooked up in the global north. Uh, what do you think about it? It was more like. It seems that the the sciences of ecological economics, climate science, and whatnot are coming to terms with, are kind of, or let's say, 
are um, uh, responding to the pressing needs of the the present moment, the the, the pressing needs of the present moment, yeah. And uh, but there are these other um, frameworks, worldviews, especially when it comes to indigenous politics in Latin America, for example, or what is called Latin America, uh, that have sort of reached a, an equilibrium, if we can call it that, or at least um, have advocated for an equilibrium um, for much longer periods of time. And now it's about it's more about like how can we find ways to link all of these up and accept a pl- pluriverse rather than a one size fits all model which we think uh, everyone should do or whatnot. Like that's, that has always been part of the problem anyway. Uh, this is not a uh, amazing segue, but you, you discussed the idea uh, of like universal basic services. And I think many folks, if not most folks listening to this have heard of UBI, right? Like universal basic income. And maybe uh, they would have heard of like a jobs guarantee kind of framework. Um, I forgot the, the technical term for it. But like, how does this, uh, can you put those three in conversation, if that makes sense? So these are part of like the, the many policies being discussed to both organize degrowth as a temporary phase and then post-growth. So the more long-term running of a growth-less economy. And of course, that remains an economy. So you have to just uh, take care of welfare provision, which is the ability of people to access the goods and services they need to satisfy certain needs mainly when you're hungry, you want to have access to food. If you cannot, you're in an economy that sucks and that doesn't work. And so universal basic services is basically um, facilitating access to a certain basket of goods and services. So when I say facilitating, I need to to tell a bit more. Like today we live in a predominantly capitalist society where most of these goods and services are commodified. When I say commodified, it means uh, they are market commodity. If you want to have access to them, you need to buy them. Okay. If you want a bike, you need to buy one. You go to the shop, you give them money and they give it to you. You don't have the money, you don't have the bike. You want to live in a city, you have to pay a rent. Uh, You want to buy food, you have to give money. So the problem is if you live in a society where uh, you don't have enough money, uh, or if you live in a society that undergoes a degrowth transformation where people, uh, some people have less money, then you're going to find yourself in a strain and you're going to have unmet needs, which is not good. So what about collectively, we take care of some of these services like we already do for education and healthcare to be instead of you, US style, you go to the hospital and you want to have something you need to pay. You don't have the money you don't get. We say there's a social guarantee of access to healthcare. So we've been developing this in many welfare states. So the question is just to expand it, to be, look, maybe housing, energy, telecommunication, all these kind of stuff, they should be guaranteed rights of access. And then when it comes to financing, that should be collectively organized, not by individual users through their purchasing power, but through our collective purchasing power. So that's here you can see the relation between UBI, basic income, and UBS, basic services. UBI is a more a market solution because I give you money, you do whatever you want. But if you live in a capitalist society where all these goods and services are uh, sold by for-profit companies that use every single opportunity to you know, uh, push up their prices, I'll give you dollars or euros and you'll just give to these companies. They'll make profits. They'll give it to very rich people that will just reinvest it into more privatization of these public infrastructure and more environmental degradation. So it doesn't really work. So UBS is a very good way 
of making sure that you give access to goods and services. And by doing so, you preserve access to this. There is no monetary leakage. There's also a mid-middle ground, which uh, you give a basic income in an alternative currency. So not the euros, not the dollar, not Bitcoin, but some local green currency with whom you can only buy certain things or that can be delimited to a certain territory. So you're sure that the euro, you, the green euro you're using here is not you know, leaking to the financial sector or anywhere else in a, a, in a tax heaven. So that's about these two. Then I'm going to talk about the job guarantee, but just very quick, Art, you cannot talk about the job guarantee without talking about work time reduction. I think these two, they just go together. And the way it works is if you want to contract production and consumption in an economy, you're going to just contract the amount of hours you spend working. And so one good way of avoiding unemployment, which is undesirable uh, currently, is to share the available time better. So instead of, you know, if you have to produce, let's say, half less, so you produce 50%, instead of firing half of your people, and then you have, you know, half of the population working full-time, half of the population working zero time, being miserable, then you put everyone part-time. We all work 50%. We are all employed. You keep your colleagues, keep your workspace, and then we have more free time. Macroeconomically, there is no difference between these two scenarios. But socio-politically, we clearly see that we would prefer to live in a society where everyone has access to employment because that's also an important social function. So work time reduction is a very good reactive policy to avoid brutal, undesirable unemployment. It's also something we should treat as a goal. Uh, working less towards the very long time, that's what an economy is for, to liberate free time, to do stuff. Uh, you can uh, basically autonomously decide what to do with. And then job guaranteed articulates with this because the problem today is I've talked of commodification. Labor itself has been commodified. So for-profit companies today, commercial companies, they're the one paying you to do stuff. They're the one creating jobs, mostly, if we're not talking about public jobs. And they're creating jobs only for activities that are lucrative. And so that predetermines what kind of jobs exist. So a lot of jobs we would like to have, people specialized in ecological reconstruction, people specialized in satisfying unmet needs when it comes to you know creating new medicine for people that need it, or just doing all the childcare and elderly care we don't have enough people doing today, that won't be created because all the hours will be focused on you know doing marketing and bullshit jobs and jobs in the financial sectors and in the banking sectors and stuff that might not be necessary. So the job guarantee basically is guaranteeing access to a job as a right. So that's the first thing. But then in the way it's being organized in practice, it gives the community, can be the state, can be the territory in the job guarantee I like and the one that we are currently experimenting in France. Uh, it happens at the municipality level where we decide, okay, everyone has access to a job. If you cannot find a job in the labor market, if no companies will hire you, then we will work with you finding one of your aspiration, one of the stuff you want to do with the skills you currently have. We will find a way to, of matching this to an unmet need. And that's something that happens outside of the market. It's a political decision. And what we've seen on the ground is that the jobs being created, most of them, they are focusing on social care and ecological needs, stuff that are not fulfilled today by for-profit. Uh, kind of jobs being created by commercial firms. 
Yeah, this is excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, I don't really have another question, but as you were speaking, I was just, again, trying to think of how this applies to, you know, the Swana, the MENA region, uh, especially given that most of the states here are autocratic uh, and hyper-decadent, like the Emirates, like uh, Saudi, you know, there's a lot of uh, hyper, hyper-consumerism, like they're the, you know, the tip of the tip of it. And how that relates to you know the demands of people over the past for the past few decades, and and thinking about how most of the demands fall within the frameworks of universal basic services. Like at the at the core of it, it's about liberation, um, freedom, but also like you know access to healthcare, access to green spaces, access just to the ability to breathe. And there is an overlap between the two. And thinking of the pluriverse in this region, there interesting to think about them as well and like how how these solutions that you're proposing come within like in the context of hyper autocratic autocratic decadent regimes um so thank you for that very and i'm going to say something very naive that seems very naive but i think it remains true like again we saw that there's this divide between something that is true at the microeconomic level with the example of the baker, that you know, we make the experience of that limitedness every day. That if you want to do more, you need to find more factors of production. So it never disappears. There's something else uh, that never uh, disappears. So I was just Im- imagining you're, you're organizing a, a picnic with your friends, uh, or you're someone on holiday, and you know, you're just making food, and someone just forgot to bring some food. What are you going to do? You're going to be like, well, you don't eat. That's how it works, you know? No, you're going to just, you're going to share the food fairly equitably. And then, you know, we're going to just make it work. We're humans. That's what we do. We'll find an arrangement that works. So all the micro experience within the family, within friendship, within the municipality, with the people, you know, in your street, you know, anthropologically for thousands of years, they've been based on this, like, okay, we do this fairly, we try to make it work. And now, weirdly, like, at the macroeconomic level, we reach a situation where we have organized a system where if you don't have money, you don't eat. If you don't have money, you, you don't live anywhere. If you don't have, uh, you know, certain skills, you don't work. If you don't have skills that for-profit company work, want, you don't work, which is a very weird anthropological outcome. Like, we would never run a small event, a small anything. We would never run it like this. So the fact that we have an economy with these kind of rules that emerge at the macroeconomics shows us that we really need to rewire the software uh, we use uh, to, to, to run our economies. Yeah, uh, definitely. And again, going back to that, uh, like we would not act this way uh in anything in any kind of relationship that any human finds meaningful uh there's always almost like an exception even in situations where like you're the ceo of a company you wouldn't unless you're a harvard person you wouldn't um you know treat your uh spouse or your children or your friends or your parents or whatnot in the same way as you would treat your employees for example or at least you you know you know what i mean and this is something that is quite interesting. Uh, I've, I've, I've dedicated a number of episodes, maybe too many, to think about this, partly what Mark Fisher called capitalist realism, and is this idea that there are no alternatives. And because of that, it goes back to this thing I said before of we have, or we, 
as in the, the dominant structure of a society has the answer or has an answer that it wants or the economists or the politicians, the decision makers, whatnot, want to have. And they're trying to uh, square that circle and they're trying to fit everything within that. And given that it doesn't work um, like on a, on a basic, uh, almost like on a physical level, then the strategy essentially right now is at least it's fe- it feels like it's a combination of denial and delaying, essentially, and maybe even minimizing the 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 threats that that we're facing okay we, we i think we will slowly wrap up uh this conversation i will ask if it's okay for like I'd, both of you to uh, maybe use her first to uh, reflect a bit on this conversation what uh, you got out of it and even maybe you know more personally you can tell folks where they can find you what are the things that you want to work or that you are working on or that you will work on in the future and Timote, uh, after Yusra, if it's okay, you do, you know, you can do the same. And also, uh, we end by, I end by asking guests to recommend three books so we can do that as well. Yeah. So I've got a website, timoteparik.com, where I'm trying to gather all the stuff I've been doing before, all the stuff I write. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at Tim Parik, on Instagram at Timote Parik, on LinkedIn. Timothy Parik, and I'm trying as best as I can to uh, to display uh, the stuff I do on on these platforms. Right now, I will be doing many events in in French uh, because my book in France was um, was quite popular. We've just been over thirty thousand copies, so that's very good news for a book uh, in French about. Degrowth. It's called Ralentir ou Périr l'économie de la décroissance, Slow Down or Perish the Economics of Degrowth. So I'll continue to do this. And then I've got a few academic articles that will soon um, come out, hopefully, this year. One on decoupling in Europe, the one I've presented uh, at the Parliament, and another one even more exciting on uh, how to finance uh, public services during a period of degrowth. So I'll be working hard on on these stuff. And for the books, I've got a little gem I was just thinking of. It's the translation of a French novel that was published in 2017. And the title is English, is uh, A Journey Through Miserky, an essay to rebuild everything. You can find the PDF for free on the Anarchist Library. And uh, it's a novel. It's a utopian novel written by a law professor at a university here in France. And so typical utopian novel, you know, the guy just flies over to, in the book, flies over to a conference in Australia, the plane crashes, and the guy finds himself in Arcadia, an 80 million country people that have implemented a system of government called misarchy. Misarchy means, you know, the uh, the hatred of power. So it's a nice little uh, degrowth-oriented post-capitalist anarchist economy. And because the guy is a law professor, it, like the institutions he talks about, like the melting property prices and specific, you know, labor contract in cooperatives is so precise. It is outstanding how interesting that thing is. It is so interesting, the world that guy's created, that I'm actually writing an academic article called, you know, um, Educating or Desire for Post-Capitalist World, the Economics of Misarchy. So I'm actually describing the economic system of that novel as if it really existed, because I think it could. That's my first book, a novel, Chilled for the Summer. Then if you want to do a bit of work, The Future is Degrowth uh, came out uh, last summer, uh, written by 
Top Scholars in the Field, it's my favorite um, introduction, like review of the degrowth literature. If you read this, you will know it all. It's full of lists. It's so well organized. Uh, and then, of course, there's Jason Hickel, Less is More, uh, which is my absolute favorite to go into the topic of degrowth. If you want a well-written, uh, riveting uh, book, you, you can read that one first. And maybe then if you want to know more about the scholarly depth of the concept, then you can switch to the future is degrowth. Amazing. Thanks a lot, Timote. Yusra, are you with us? No, she's not. <laughs> <laughs> we lost her completely. <laughs> I think she went to work stuff. It's okay. It's okay. okay. We knew that we know this uh, happens on on this podcast. We have to just uh, adapt. These, it's not a problem. See, those the risk risk of the trade. Yeah, it is what it is. It's okay. Uh, well, okay, Timothy, thanks a lot for doing this. Uh, honestly, this was this was a, a fascinating conversation. I'm sure listeners would agree. And uh, Yusra, when you do hear this, <laughs> thanks a lot for joining us. And sorry we can have you in the end, uh, but as we said, these things happen. Uh, but anyway, thanks a lot, Timothy. Thank you so much for the invite. See you next time. Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayou. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.